Please be seated. Well, uh, Abraham Lincoln said this, whatever you are, be a good one. And that's from the president, or the ex-president of several generations ago, but uh, it's a good statement, isn't it? And if we're followers of Jesus, we want to be a good one. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this morning, written by Paul all those years ago, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what he's saying and help us to become more like Jesus and reflect your love for the world. Amen. Well, we're uh, in a series uh, in the uh, first letter to Timothy. Paul had written this letter to the church in Ephesus and the young leader, Timothy. And we're nearly at the end of that. There's only one more sermon next week on this series. And uh, Paul had given Timothy, the young leader, advice on how the church at Ephesus should live. He'd written concerning false teachers. He'd written about worship. He'd written about the necessary characteristics required of leaders and deacons and how members of the church should live and act. And now, like in any good sermon, he returns to his earlier points. He returns to his teaching concerning leaders and false teaching and the dangers that this can bring to God's community here on earth. And so it's relevant to us today. It's relevant for us as how we are to live as followers of Jesus and how our leaders are to live as well. Because we don't live, do we, in a vacuum. We don't live in isolation, separate from the world in which we live. In fact, we live very much within the arms of our society. And if we could have the first uh, three uh, adverts, please, I'll try and illustrate this. With a powerful quad-core processor, two cameras and seven-inch screen, all for less than 50 quid. It sort of makes you wonder, why buy just one? The 49.99 Fire Tablet from Amazon.
Well, I'm sure that you will recognize some of those. We live, don't we, very much within a materialistic culture that insists that our happiness, our self-fulfillment, our worth and our image is bound up by what we own, what we buy and the wealth we have. We're bombarded by these advertisements on TV and they seduce us into wanting more. And we are all, aren't we, in our society concerned about our savings, our investments, our pensions, how to get a good return on our savings. We are alarmed by job cuts and the potential cuts in social services, all driven by financial demands and the management of money. The old saying comes to mind, money makes the world go round. And since this is the world that we live in, it's very easy for us as Christians to be concerned with the same issues and for us to embrace the same values. But are these Jesus' concerns? Is this what should be moulding our lives within the church and the lives of our leaders? Well, the Apostle Paul calls the Christians in Ephesus to be different to the world in which they lived, and so should we be if we are followers of Jesus. So as we consider the society in which we live, we are encouraged, aren't we, to respect all those that have wealth, success and increasingly popularity. This, of course, has been the pattern throughout British history. We give honour to those who own the largest amount of land, have titles and estates, compared to those that own very little or have little education. Well, the passage in front of us this morning, in chapter 6, verses 3 to 10, gives us a very different picture. Paul gives us the picture of two types of leaders found within the church. Those that teach false doctrines and do not agree to the sound teaching of Jesus, which leads to controversy, arguments, and the search for wealth, and those that are godly, and have the spirit of contentment within them. So what we're going to do this morning then is we're going to look at these two different types of leaders and their characteristics. And I've got some word pictures to try to illustrate some of these points. So the first one then, what is, what is the characteristic of false leaders and false teaching? Well, if you like to think about it like this, it's like a building with dry rot within wooden beams and flooring. And if a building is like that, it has a serious issue. Because once dry rot gets within a wooden beam or structure, it tends to spread, though at the start of the process, it is often unseen. Eventually, though, its effects become observable, and if permitted to continue, it can infect the whole building and bring it down. So given its potential for such damage, it's not surprising that the best solution is either to prevent its occurrence in the first place or to have regular inspections in order to deal quickly with any outbreak. 
And similarly, at the beginning of this letter to Timothy, and now in this passage, Paul has warned Timothy concerning the dangers concerning false teaching within the church, within the church which may not at first be detected. Eventually, though, it has the capacity to spread and do untold damage to the spiritual health of the church. And so this morning's passage shows us some of the manifestations of certain aspects of false teaching and reveals the long-term seriousness of the situation so that Paul's audience is forewarned. We read in verses 4 to 5 that false teachers have the characteristics of pride and conceit. And this condition then leads to quarrels and unhealthy interests in controversy, envy, strife, malicious talk, men who are corrupted and don't have the truth, who believe that if they live godly lives, this will bring wealth and success. And their lives show a love of money above all else. And as we look at verse 3, the question for us is, and for our leaders, do we believe and act upon the words of Jesus as we have them in the Scriptures, or do we try and change them to fit in with the interests of our own lives? It's an amazing conceit, isn't it, that anyone as a a professing Christian could even think of rejecting the words of Jesus or changing them. It's staggering that such people are in effect saying that they know better than him. Of course, we can question whether these people, whether they be theologians or church leaders, are actually followers of Jesus or merely people who make a profession of the church. Throughout the centuries, we have seen evidence where Jesus' words have been changed. Given the fact that Jesus' words are described in verse 3 as sound or healthy, it's no wonder that a sickly, weak church results when such teaching is given by church leaders. Of course, this teaching will be wrapped up in careful ways by saying that Jesus' words were true then, but do not apply in our modern world or by twisting the language in order to make sense of his teaching different from what has been accepted down throughout the centuries. The reality is that a healthy church needs healthy doctrine, which comes from a full acceptance of God's word found in the Bible. As an example of this, consider some of the recent pronouncements by some church leaders concerning sexuality and marriage. Well, such is the seriousness of the situation of of these teachers that Paul, in verse 5, uses the term robbed. Paul states that the followers of Jesus have been robbed of the truth by the false teachers and their false doctrines. It's a picture, isn't it? Another word picture for you. It's a picture of someone being mugged in the street and being stripped of their possessions, leaving them with nothing of value. And this is the effect of false teaching upon the church. Paul is warning the church at Ephesus, this is the danger of false teaching. And it should be a warning for us today within our church and the wider national and international church. Paul's teaching can help us when it comes to the selection of leaders who teach at any level within the church. 
that great care needs to be taken and that teachers need to be accountable for their teaching. In many churches and denominations, there are few, if any, controls which should be a cause of great concern. Even I can remember uh, a few years ago when I was studying to become a lay reader. I can remember on that lay reader's training course, hearing that from many of the other trainees that the Bible was very rarely used within their churches and certainly not held to be the true word of God to mankind throughout the ages. Well, this was so important to Paul that he states in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31, Paul makes this statement uh, concerning this issue and leadership. He says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So Paul then is warning the Ephesian church leaders with tears concerning the danger of these false teachers and the damage that could be done. Now, of course, we recognise, don't we, that no Christian fellowship will be perfect for all of us are sinners and we all fall short of God's glory. But we can use verses 3 to 5 as a diagnostic tool to look at the spiritual state of the fellowship that we are a part of. Is there evidence of quarrels, malicious or constant friction within it? Do we need to bring our beliefs and behaviour back in line with the scriptures? Do we need to make this an item for prayer? Well, in contrast to this difficult and divisive characteristics and to the materialistic world that we live in, Paul offers us hope of Christ-centred living. Look at verses 6 to 9 in contrast to verses 9 to 10 and the world culture that we live in. Paul states that the follower of Christ, what one loves will drive what one does. Therefore, if the main aim of one's life is to get riches, this will determine how one lives and won't bring contentment. It's one of the sadnesses of my life that in my teaching career over the last 15 years or so, talking to young students, there seems to have been a rise in the proportion who state that they want to go into the financial sector purely because it offers so rich rewards despite their academic interests. In other words, whatever they go to study at university, whatever their academic interest is, they will, in the end, move into the financial sector because it offers them their best rewards. The fact that financial wealth and fame doesn't bring happiness and contentment can be seen in many people's lives and can end in frustration, loneliness and despair. In contrast, as followers of Jesus, our aims are to follow him, to become more like him, and to display the fruits of the Spirit. Look at verses 6 and 7 in contrast to this. Look what Paul says. Paul states about godliness. Paul is stating that the aim of the lives of the leaders and of followers of Jesus should be godly, to be like God. 
to be like God in righteousness. And he says that this is great gain. Therefore, although we know that we are sinners, we can turn this into prayer requests, asking God's Holy Spirit to help us attain this. But not only godliness, Paul states that contentment should be a characteristic of the followers of Jesus. Genuine contentment is a beautiful fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer and profoundly counterculture. If we're displaying the gifts of the Spirit, contentment will be one of them and it will set us apart from many of the people that we mix with. We can be content, Paul states in verse 7, because we were born with nothing and we will take nothing out when we die. Although we do know that some are born into wealth and privilege. However, Paul adds that if we have the basics of life, food and clothing, then we can be content because we have the love of Jesus and the certainty of spending eternity with him. And this attitude of contentment is helped through having a godly perspective on life as seen through the Psalms. Jill was encouraging us to read the Bible on a daily basis. Well, if you read through the Psalms, you will see that the writers give us a godly perspective upon life. They state that God is in control of the earth. God made creation. God loves his people and forgives their sins. God desires our praises and we can start each day with praising him. This gives us a God-centred reality rather than a self-centred reality. In contrast to this, our our culture is constantly offering and demanding a more self-centred reality as the TV commercials show. And it's a fact, isn't it, that we have become more materialistic, more acquisitive, more consumerist within our lives in the last 20, 30, 40 years. However, in contrast to this, the follower of Jesus has great riches now because Jesus has forgiven our sins and promises eternity. And having this perspective will allow us to learn true Christian contentment. And we'll do well to take on board verse 7, as this will influence how we understand our own situation. However, feeding the desires to get rich simply feeds other desires. This is why, strangely enough, wealth doesn't bring lasting happiness. Of course, wealth brings temporary benefits for our enjoyment, but these pleasures, according to Paul in verse 9, can be a trap that ensnares people. Wealth promises happiness and freedom from worry, but it cannot deliver and it brings with its own concerns and anxieties. In fact, people often spend large amounts of time and energy on trying to safeguard their wealth from others who have less. We can see this very obviously from gated communities in new housing developments and barbed wire fences around large houses to protect the owners from people that have less than them. It's a desperately sad, isn't it, to see people who have overstretched themselves financially and who have fallen into this trap of wanting more and more and have found this appetite to be never satisfied. But even worse is the situation described by Paul in verse 10 where he states that there are people in the church who have wandered from the faith through their love of money. 
And when I look back and see how family life has changed, for instance, over the last 50 years, even in Christian circles, the changes to things like Sunday trading, the increased need to work long hours to maintain a high standard of living, the demands that children make upon their parents for the latest technology at Christmas. I remember Jesus' words in Mark 10. In Mark 10, Jesus warns his disciples after meeting the rich young man that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Though, of course, for many of us here this morning, we wouldn't consider ourselves rich. Compared to much of the world that we live in and compared to the people of the Jesus time, we are indeed wealthy. We have way above the basic needs of food and clothing, as quoted in verse 8. One of the dangers, though, for Jesus' followers is that we tend to have a very commendable work ethic. We work hard. And this work ethic may well lead to promotion at work and higher salaries. Yet with these benefits often comes a decline in genuine Christian commitment And it's sadly no surprise when these people eventually wander away from the church. Rarely is there a fundamental problem in their beliefs, though they may often be used as a smokescreen. Rather, it's like the situation in our gardens. Here's another word picture for you. We clear a flower bed of weeds. We add fertiliser and then we plant the bedding plants. If these are left unattended for a few months, we return to see the weeds growing and gradually entangling and covering the flowers that we have planted. And isn't this the picture given to us in Mark 4, verses 18 and 19, concerning the seed amongst the thorns, which is then choked by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things? So then, for the people described in verse 10, their lives become so busy, their work or career takes up so much time that there is little time for family and the work of God here on earth. And so there's a warning here for all of us. What are the main priorities of our lives? Where is our first love? Is it for Jesus Is it for doing God's will here on earth or is it for the attainment of wealth? There is, is, of course, nothing wrong with the object of money itself. It's an inanimate object. And, of course, it allows and can be used to accomplish a lot of things. Rather, it's how we relate to it. How important is it in our lives and whether Jesus has the place of lordship within them. So there we have it, a short passage this morning, getting towards the end of Paul's letter. And I believe that this morning we have seen, through this short passage, the love and concern that the Apostle Paul had for that church in Ephesus, and especially for the leaders within it. I think we can be encouraged by this, can't we? And we can use it to challenge ourselves concerning our lives and and our church and our leaders within our church. And we can turn it into prayer. We can pray 
for ourselves and we can pray for one another and we can pray for our leaders that we may all be kept from the overlove of this materialistic age in which we live. Amen.